coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Well, as I educated myself, come to find out, well, all of your hormones are actually regulated while you're asleep. So <laughs> if you interfere with the cycles of sleep, then you interfere with the production and sensitivity to hormones. Um, and then all these other complaints like uh, sex drive and emotional stability and mood and concentration, go figure all of that gets repaired, regenerated, restored and set while you're asleep. So once I learned, you know, how these sleep drugs can interfere with the processes, the normal processes that go into sleep, and we can talk about that to whatever detail you want. Um, but when I, once I learned kind of what's supposed to happen when you sleep and then how can these drugs interfere with that, well, then it made perfect sense that Ambien was a big contributor to what they were doing. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed former Navy SEAL and sleep expert, Doc Parsley. We discussed how prioritizing sleep will optimize your hormones, how much the body actually repairs itself during sleep, along with aging in sleep, sleep and its effects on athletic performance, ingredients that might aid your sleep quality, and his three tips to optimize your sleep. Well, this one was all, as you can tell, all based around sleep. I really enjoyed my interview with Doc Parsley. I know you will too. Thanks again for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Doc Parsley. Well, welcome to the show, Doc. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad to have you on. I was telling you off air that I haven't, we haven't done a full podcast uh, around sleep. We, talk, we touch on it as like a huge pillar of health. So I'm excited to have you on and just talk about you know, your business and sort of what got you into this, um, this realm of, of health. Uh, perhaps before maybe you go into that, I know your, your background is pretty intricate regarding you know, Navy SEALs and um, then med school. So I'd love to, love to just share, I'd love for you to share your story. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, um, so I, I grew up um, and, you know, kind of small town, small town, Texas, uh, you know, grew up from, you know, the very, yeah, almost rural, I would say is on the borderline of rural Texas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, came from a very, you know, traditional blue collar family. I'm like 12th generation Texan. Um, and it was just, you know, it was, it was just something always assumed that, uh, if you're able-bodied, you know, you go do your military time. And so I, you know, I just always assumed I would do it. I didn't really have a plan for what it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I played a lot of sports. Um, I was, I was a pretty good athlete. I was a terrible student. Uh, so after four years of high school, I was, uh, I just accumulated enough credits to be a sophomore. Um, so okay. I just, I just dropped out and got a GED. Um, but one of the sports I played, I, I, one of the sports I did, I boxed and my, my boxing coach was the Marine recruiter for my hometown. And so, it was kind of this unspoken idea that I was going to go Marines, probably Marine recon, you know, I wanted to do something challenging. And then, uh, you know, this documentary came out about, uh, Navy SEALs. It was, uh, it was called 48 hours. It was a news documentary show, like 60 minutes or something. And they covered the first 48 hours of, of hell week. And they kept, you know, emphasizing how this was the toughest training in the military, toughest training in the world, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I want to do the toughest training in the world, you know? So, um, <clears throat> one day when my, uh, when I knew the Marine recruiter wasn't in town, I went down to the recruiting station and I joined the Navy and, uh, I, I wanted to go through SEAL training. I didn't really know what a SEAL was. I mean, very few people did. So I didn't know hundred percent what I was going to do, but I figured, you know, something like Rambo. Uh, so I, I honestly, I didn't even know I was going to get paid. Uh, I'd, I'd been in military for several months before I, I realized they were going to pay me to do it. I just thought, you know, they're going to give me clothes and place to sleep and food. And I'm either going to be training or, you know, 
operating. So, yeah. Um, what year would what year were not, you in the Navy SEALs? I'm just curious. Uh, so I, I joined. Uh, I I joined the Navy in like December of uh, of '87, and then I, I actually left for boot camp in I want to say like June of '88, or maybe before that. Might might have been May. Um, okay. And uh, did did my boot camp in Orlando, and then went up to Great Lakes to do gunner's mate. Uh, which called a school apprenticeship school since, you know, 90% of people fail seal training. They train you to do a job beforehand so that when you fail, fail. you have a place to go. They have a place to send you, uh, you're qualified to do something. Uh, so I did that training and then, you know, went to seal training, obviously made it through. Um, I got stationed in San Diego as a seal, um, you know, obviously living in San Diego, I, I ended up, meeting a girl out in san diego falling in love getting married uh and she was from san diego so um you know when i got out of the seal teams it was really just because i you know i just wanted to do other things you know it, it, it you know we didn't we had the gulf war while I, while I was in but that lasted like you know six minutes uh so just kind of did a lot of the same redundant training cycles over and over and over again and you know, it was, it was a fun job, but it just didn't seem like it was going anywhere other than to just keep doing what I've been doing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of a young single man's job and I was becoming yeah. neither. So I decided, you know, go out and do something else and didn't have any aspirations of medical school or anything. I mean, I, I like I said, I wasn't even a high school graduate. I thought, you know, maybe an athletic trainer, you know, something like that in that sure. world. Um, and so I started working at San Diego Sports Medicine Center to get, well, I volunteered there to get my hours and because uh, I was thinking about maybe a physical therapy school. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> they hired me on and I worked there the whole time I was in college. So I worked there for six years because I did, uh, I had to go to junior college, obviously, because I, I couldn't even qualify for college. Um, and I did, uh, you know, five years with junior college and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, UCSD combined. And, um, you know, along the way the the doctors at San Diego sports medicine center talked me into, you know, throwing my hat in the ring for medical school, uh, really kind of shamed me into it. Cause I was like, there's no way I could get into medical school. Like, you know, you guys need to slow down. Like I, I just, I just barely, you know, I, I didn't even get through high school. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're setting the goals a little too lofty here. And, yeah. and this one doctor said to me, he said, well, it isn't, a matter of whether or not you could get in the question is would you go if you got in and i said of course i'd go and he said well then why wouldn't you try and i was like all right well i mean you kind of mm-hmm, <laughs> that, that's mm-hmm. that's a pretty good point so uh all right i'll try and uh so i got into i got into the military's medical school i didn't even know they had a medical school uh until i was applying and uh, you know since i was already married and i already had a kid and i had another kid on the way it just made sense to go where they would pay me to go to medical school instead of the other way around. Um, and the way the military always works is they'll do, uh, you know, they'll train you to do anything, but you, you pay it back with time. So it's basically, but it's usually the contract's about two to one. So four years of medical school, and then you have to be a doctor for them for eight years. Um, and so I, you know, I, I figured I would get back to the SEAL teams, uh, be able to get back to the community that, you know, really shaped me as, as a, as an adult, but as a, as a human, I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, very formidable years in my life. And so, uh, I figured I would go back there and do a bunch of sports medicine, which is what I was, you know, is what I was good at. It's what I spent all my time training as, and I was, uh, planning to, you know, go back to training and finish, uh, a residency in orthopedic surgery. And, um, I got to the SEAL teams and they just received the funding to build their first sports medicine facility. Um, and so they, they put me in, jo- in charge of supervising the build out of that. And then I was, uh, you know, one of the people involved in hiring, you know, all of our healthcare practitioners, which we'd never had before. I mean, people would have, you know, this was 2009, 2010. So people would have assumed probably that SEALs had this big, healthcare network around them and that we treated them like professional athletes, but nothing could be further from the truth. We didn't have any kind of 
treatment for them really whatsoever. They would have to, you know, go do it on their own across the bridge into San Diego and like go to the Navy hospital and do everything up there. So, uh, you know, obviously my, I, I was, I was a really good fit for that given what I'd done in college and what my intentions were afterwards. So, um, you know, we, yeah, supervised the build out of the clinic and the facility. And then, you know, we hired physical therapists and athletic trainers and PT assistants and, uh, nutritionists and strength and conditioning coaches and cool. exercise physiologists and all the stuff. And we hired, like we built this great center. Uh, then I, I negotiated with the hospital to have like orthopedics rounds come through there, uh, twice a month and pain clinic come through a couple of times a month and acupuncture came through and chiropractor came through. And so we had this healthcare Mecca at that point. Um, and then, that made me the dumbest guy around, right? Because we did, we hired great help. I mean, we'd hired, you know, Olympic, Olympic training center practitioners and professional athlete, professional sports team, uh, practitioners and mm-hmm. uh, division one colleges. Like we, we got the, you know, the best of the best. And, um, <clears throat> you know, when you're the dumbest, then when you're the dumbest guy in the military, their solution is, well, you should be in charge then. So, um, so they put me in job in charge of supervising this clinic. Um, and you know, what seal, you know, seals are a lot like, um, you know, you know, I, like I, their jobs athletic and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, call them athletes because it's too, uh, it's too limited. Right. Cause they, they don't, you know, it's not a, it's not a game and they don't have quantified rules and regulations and yeah, you know, and they don't have an on season and an off season. Like it's a, it's a much tougher job than being an athlete, but you know, and, and the, their mentality is a lot like an athlete in that their performance is everything. And the worst thing you can do to them is put them on the bench. Um, and then, and the number one person who can put them on the bench is, is the healthcare practitioner. So mm-hmm. usually when they, when they go see doctors, um, you know, and other healthcare practitioners, they just, they just lie. They just say, everything's great. I got, I got no problems whatsoever. Uh, they don't want to share their problems with you because you might put them on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, but because, because I'd been a seal and I'd been a seal recently enough to where there were a lot of seals there who I'd been a seal with. Um, and I had a, and I had a good reputation amongst those guys. So, uh, they started coming to my office and closing the door and saying, Hey man, let me, let me tell you what's really going on with me, you know, just between us. And, you know, they would come in and say, you know, my mood, my mood's terrible. I'm, I'm super moody. I'm all over the place. I snap at my kids. I snap at my colleagues at work. I snap on my wife. I, I go from elated to feeling like crying, like instantaneously all throughout the day. I don't know what's going on. My memory sucks. My concentration sucks. My motivation sucks. Uh, you know, I'm getting fatter, I'm getting weaker, I'm losing muscle. Um, mm-hmm. my sex drives poor, my sexual performance isn't where I want it to be. And, but I'm doing everything, you know, I'm doing everything you tell me, you know, you guys are telling me to do. I'm working with the nutritionist. I'm working with the strength and conditioning coach. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing the meditation. Like I, I'm doing all the stuff you guys are telling me to do. And my performance isn't where I want it to be. Now you have to take that with a grain of salt because these are Navy SEALs. So what they consider fat and what they consider unmotivated and what they consider right. uh, weak, you know, is, is, you know, it's a lot different than what the average person would consider. Um, but it didn't matter because what they were concerned about was their performance and they're relying on me and trusting me to do this, but I was a Western trained MD, right? Like I knew how to recognize and treat disease. They didn't have any diseases. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know what the hell to do. Right. I'm just yeah. like, I don't know, like, uh, maybe, you know, we'd all heard about combat fatigue and shell shock and, you know, previous wars. Right. So we're going on like eight or nine years of combat for these guys. I'm like, well, maybe it's something to do with that. And what, what could that be? And so I started, I started looking in sort of the alternative integrative functional medicine kind of world, um, which is more performance oriented, obviously. And, uh, and, and what I had going for me was that I was the doctor for the West Coast SEALs and they, you know, the SEALs had a reputation by that point. You know, they'd been in the media, they'd killed Bin Laden, they'd done, you know, whatever. They'd had all these successes and, um, 
you know, and traumatic stories like, you know, red wings and extortion and all that. Um, so, but because, you know, they, they had a very public image. Um, I, you know, I could hear someone's Ted talk or, you know, go to a symposium and hear someone lecture or read someone's book. And I could just call them up and say, Hey, I'm the doctor for the West coast seal teams. And you know, I'm having these problems and it kind of seems like it's in your wheelhouse. Would, you know, could I train with you? Could you recommend books with me? Could I do, you know, for me, could I, could I do, you know, could I consult with you on, on my difficult cases and all this? And so I got to learn a lot really quickly. Like, you know, my, my learning curve was insane. Um, and, you know, I, my original postulate, you know, just because I didn't know, I was just getting these enormous lab panels. I was getting 98 different serum markers on these guys, 17 vials of blood they were, they were giving. Um, and, you know, I was just testing everything because I didn't, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I just knew that they weren't performing well. And, you know, what, what came back was a picture that would look like a, you know, 55 year old man who's 30 pounds overweight, um, and, you know, metabolic syndrome or like flirting with metabolic syndrome, sort of pre-diabetic, um, which didn't make sense. It didn't match the guy in front of me who was, you know, 30, 28 to 32 years old, still has six pack abs, you know, is in, you know, looks to be in great shape. Um, and if you measure their performance against the average population, they would be really high performing. Um, but they weren't performing to where they should be, obviously, which is all that matters or where they thought they should be. And uh, so I, you know, what I was getting was this picture of really low anabolic markers. So things like testosterone and growth hormone and DHEA, and um, those are really low. Now, not, not clinically low, like the, say like normal testosterone is between 250 and 1100. And these guys would come in at like 283 or two, mm -hmm. you know, 260. Um, but if you know anything about that stratification of 250 to 1100, that includes all males, uh, 18 and older who have their testicles and they're alive. Like that's really the only criteria for being in that normal group. So, you know, what, what do you make of a 280 testosterone level and, and a guy like that? It's like, well, it doesn't seem ideal, but you can't treat that because it's, it's within the normal range. Right. <laughs> um, and you can't treat it anyways, because the Navy wouldn't let you do it. Like I, I couldn't have put the seals on testosterone replacement therapy because they would have, that would have disqualified them uh, right. from the job. So, uh, you know, their anabolic markers were low, their catabolic inflammatory markers were really high. Their insulin sensitivity was marginal or poor. Uh, you know, I, so I was originally thinking, well, you know, and I was also looking at micronutrients, right. Vitamins and minerals and things like that. And, you know, they, uh, they had the typical sort of low magnesium levels, low, uh, low red blood cell magnesium. They had low vitamin D three levels. Um, and I was thinking, well, maybe this is like, you know, maybe this is an adrenal thing. They're you know going through some sort of adrenal mismatch fatigue, whatever you want to call that. And so I started treating them for that. I was giving them you know, Myers cocktails, like IV, IV vitamins and minerals, essentially. Um, I was doing uh, cortisol tapers on them to sort of help their adrenals recover. I was giving them adrenal support. I was giving them, you know, supplements like DHEA, uh, some zinc to block the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. And I was trying to see what I could do that way. And I was having marginal success, maybe 30% of the people were getting 50% better or something like that. It wasn't great. Mm -hmm. Um, and after about a hundred guys came in my office and told me nearly the identical story, um, one guy, you know, sometimes you hear something that just sparks, you know, like, mm -hmm. it, it just, you know, it's just a profound moment and it was nothing profound said, but it was a profound moment, um, where one of the guys said something to me about taking Ambien. He took Ambien every night and, I, uh, I remember making a note in the margin going, it seems like a lot of guys have said that. I wonder if that could be playing into this. And, uh, so I went, but after he left, I went back through my, my records and looked at all the people who'd been in my office and every single one of them was taking Ambien. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that seems like a helpful coincidence. Let me see what's going on with that. Um, 
Well, you know, the problem with pharmaceuticals is that when they apply for uh, FDA approval, they, the pharmaceutical company itself does the research, right? And so they own the research and they give the FDA what they want to give them and they don't give them what they don't want to give them. Hmm. Um, and so it's obviously skewed in their favor. However, once they get dragged into court for possibly knowing about some side effects of a drug that they didn't disclose, which was the case with Ambien, they had, they had been taken into court recently. Then they have to give up all their research. They have to give up all the data. And so it had, it had come out that, uh, you know, once I started digging into it now, first of all, I didn't know anything about sleep. I never had a single class on medical in medical school on sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, neither at any other doctor at that point. Um, so I knew what Ambien was, I knew its mechanism of action, as they say. Um, but I didn't know enough about sleep to know how this could be impacting what I was seeing in their labs. Well, as I educated myself, come to find out, well, all of your hormones are actually regulated while you're asleep. So <laughs> if you interfere with the cycles of sleep, then you interfere with the production and sensitivity to hormones. Um, and then all these other complaints like uh, sex drive and emotional stability and mood and concentration, go figure all of that gets repaired, regenerated, restored and set while you're asleep. So once I learned, you know, how these sleep drugs can interfere with the processes, the normal processes that go into sleep, and we can talk about that to whatever detail you want. Um, but when I, once I learned kind of what's supposed to happen when you sleep and then how can these drugs interfere with that, well, then it made perfect sense that Ambien was a big contributor to what they were doing. And then, mm. uh, to the uh, symptoms they're experiencing, but also they were, most of them were taking, uh, Ambien with, uh, you know, alcohol, right? right. So they're having a couple of beers or a couple of cocktails with their Ambien to make them feel sleepy. And if you know anything about the seal mentality, if one's good, then two's better and three's great. Right. So they were mm. taking way more than they should, uh, drinking way more than they should. And they would go to bed and they'd wake up around four o'clock in the morning and they couldn't go back to sleep. And they'd go to the gym and work out really hard and stay at work all day and not take a nap and think they'll right. come home and go to sleep tonight and everything will reset. And they, you know, they've been doing that for a couple of years. It hasn't worked yet. It's probably not going to work. So, uh, yeah. So I, I thought, well, let's get these guys off of Ambien and control their alcohol intake, minimize that. Um, I didn't want to try to get rid of it because you, know, you don't want to sound, you know, too puritanical or whatever about any of this stuff. So, um, and doing that, I mean, I, no, I wasn't naive enough to think that it would explain or correct every symptom, but what I, what I had learned was, you know, once I learned a lot about sleep was that it could explain every symptom they had, right. It was definitely mm -hmm. contributed to everything. And then I went from, you know, 50% improvement in 30, 30% of the people, uh, I went to, you know, about an 80% improvement in about 80% of the guys. Right. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that was a night and day I had, you know, I had 45 year old men getting PRs in the gym you know, personal records on their list, personal records on their runs, personal, whatever sports they were into, they were, they were performing not just better, but better than they had ever performed in their life. Um, and I was like, wow, that's pretty profound. And <laughs> honestly, it, it was still in me. It was still in me that I just wanted to go in there and correct everything. Right. I just right. wanted to go fix their cortisol levels. I wanted to go fix their insulin sensitivity. I wanted to go fix their hormone levels. Uh, but I couldn't do that. You know, um, that the Navy wouldn't have let me, um, and it wouldn't have been right for them, you know, in retrospect, knowing what I know now, that would have been the worst solution. Um, you know, at some point in your life, you'll need hormone replacement therapy, but not when you're 30. Right. I mean, if you start mm -hmm. doing it, once you start doing it, you kind of buy into it for life. Um, so, you know, we, uh, you know, the, these guys were, tripling quadrupling their total testosterone levels quadrupling their free testosterone levels uh you know improving their insulin sensitivity you know 30 40 50 percent um you know all of their inflammatory and oxidative markers were going down they felt better they're performing better 
Um, now the seals are mixed with a lot of traumatic brain injuries too, just from the blast force of weapons and, and hitting their heads and training and whatever. So, um, that was contributing to their dysregulation, which was that other, you know, 20% that we weren't getting to. So over time, I figured that out and we started working more with that. And so now it's, you know, now I still work with a lot of, with a lot of seals and a lot and hundreds and hundreds of, um, of retired seals and other special forces guys. Um, and now it's a more complete thing. Like we're, you know, we're still working with sleep, uh, obviously, but, um, you know, uh, we do a lot with, um, yeah, I, I do a lot with the, you know, the TBIs as well. Um, so I, you know, when I, when I work with them now, when I work with private clients, I do sleep, nutrition, exercise, stress mitigation. Right. And then, right. and then we work on anything specific with them. Um, yeah, but, and, and when I first started this lecture series, again, like I was planning on being an orthopedic surgeon. Like I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have any burning desire to be a, an expert in sleep. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the seals had these, uh, pre uh, pre pre-deployment uh and post deployment symposiums and we would you know take the entire seal team out to a resort for three days before they deployed and bring their families out and you bring in all these services you know and and teach them about what they're going to be going through what their family's going to be going through what are the resources they have so on and so forth and we'd bring in guest lecturers, you know, uh, we'd have like Dave Grossman come in and talk about the psychology of killing. We'd have Rob Wolf come in and talk about nutrition. We'd have Chris Kresser come and talk about nutrition and whatever. We'd have John Wellborn come talk about strength and fitness and whatever. And so uh, these were all the health and wellness influencers in the, you know, 2009, 2010 through 12 kind of timeframe. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would be one of the lecturers at these symposiums and I got to know these guys and they started inviting me on their podcast and inviting me to other symposiums. And then I just became <laughs> this sleep guy. Mm -hmm. And that, and at that time I was really the only one talking about sleep. You know, there was, uh, you know, there was that Dr. Bruce up in, uh, in Canada, uh, he, he's a much more conventional sort of traditional guy. And then, and then there, there was me and that, and that was it. And now, you know, I, I literally got laughed out of the office of the leadership when I was telling them, Hey, the guy's hormones are low because they're not sleeping well and they're not sleeping enough. And they're like dumbest thing I've ever heard. Get out of mm -hmm. here. You know? And now that's common knowledge. Now the average person knows that their hormones are regulated while they're sleeping and their appetites regulated while they're sleeping. And, you know, their concentration and emotional stability the next day hinges on the sleep they got that night and all that. So now it's much more accepted, but it, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was lunatic fringe stuff when I was talking about it back then. Yeah. Now it's become a lot more mainstream, we should say, Yeah, uh, talking about sleep and what, what are some of the things that you learned or what can people apply that could help perhaps, um, you know, just in general, improve sleep and, and, um, you know, get them not only just, you know, uh, the time, the amount of time that you're spending sleep, but the quality of your sleep as well. Right. Right. What are some of the type of yeah. things that individuals could do? I mean, obviously, you know, with screens and everything, that's like a big thing. I'm actually wearing some, some, uh, like, you know, blue blocking glasses during the day here right now, but, right. um, what, what's some of the, I, I love talking about routines and things that people can do to help, you know, solidify a solid sleep, uh, night's sleep. Yeah. So the most important thing, um, and, and this is true, you know, I, I now, you know, I've had the privilege to work with professional sports teams and international corporations and, you know, C-level executives, big time entrepreneurs, like, uh, I run the gambit. And what, what I have found over doing this for over a decade now is that the most important step is convincing yourself how important sleep is. Mm -hmm. You're wired to sleep already, right? Uh, you know, you, you were you were born into a world where one, you're going to die, and two, it takes about eight hours to recover from being awake from sixteen for sixteen hours. You don't get to negotiate that, right? But we think we can. We think we can negotiate it, and 
uh, and, it, and like when I did my TED talk, I did this metaphor about your surgeon taking a shot every couple of hours during the day just to kind of, you know, keep his nerves steady and how we wouldn't accept that. But, you know, we've, we've correlated sleep deprivation to uh, intoxication and hundreds, if not thousands of, of published literatures will show this. Um, and so not only are you impaired as far as like your cognition, your problem solving ability, your mood, your coordination, all the things you think about when you think about being intoxicated, but the thing that people don't think about the most is you know, what's your self-awareness like when you're intoxicated, right? The biggest problem with being intoxicated is you usually don't think you're intoxicated or you don't think you're nearly as bad as you are. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true of sleep deprivation. So if you're using your subjective experience on life to determine whether or not you're sleeping well, that that's not going to be very helpful because you right. don't have a great subjective experience of sleep. In fact, one of the things that makes my job so hard is if I do my job really well and you sleep really well, if you're my client and I coach you and you sleep, you start sleeping amazing. All you're going to remember is going to sleep and then you're going to wake up. So you don't have any experiences and that's like, oh, perfect. And I say, oh, perfect. That's ideal. You don't know if I did anything or not, right? <laughs> you don't know if you're better because you don't remember sleeping. But you know, one of the things that happens when we don't get enough sleep is we release a bunch of uh, stress hormones to compensate for our lack of sleep. And those stress hormones make you feel more alert. Uh, that's the whole point of releasing them. So the first thing I tell people is convince yourself how important sleep is. And this is easy to do because unlike nutrition and unlike exercise research, if, if you go on something like PubMed or Google scholar and you put in, you know, anything about sleep research is very consistent. You know, it's a, it's a young field that sleep science is about 65, 70 years old, but there's not a, there's not a lot of conflicting information in there, right? It's not mm -hmm. like the vegan carnivore debate and nutrition. Right. There's nothing like that. There's no one out there saying you don't need sleep. Right. Um, and, and anybody who's telling you you don't need eight hours of sleep is trying to sell you something. Um, I mean, literally, they're probably trying to sell you it, their products. And, and just um, I, I, on that note, like, yeah, you hear like seven to nine hours. Is that, and depending on like, as you age, do you necessarily need a little bit less sleep than someone obviously that's younger? No, if anything, you would need more, but okay. people tend to sleep less as they get older. Okay. Um, and that has, there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is we tend to accumulate more stressors in our life as we get older <laughs> up until a certain point, right? Kind of right. when you hit elderly, it kind of starts going the other way. But we have a lot more stressors, but we also, by and large, as a society, tend to get in worse physical condition. And we drink more alcohol and take more medications and things like that. Um, and one of the big things that interferes with sleep is just simply discomfort. So if you're, you know, if you're metabolically sort of unstable and you have a lot of aches and pains because you don't exercise that regularly and you're not in that good of shape and your circulation's not all that good you're going to have a harder time sleeping. That's just all there is to it. Um, and when we're young, we have more sleep pressure. We like, we have more sleep drive, uh, you know, building up adenosine. So the breakdown of ATP, uh, adenosine triphosphate, you break it down to ADP and then AMP and then just a, which is adenosine. Adenosine causes the sleep pressure. Well, the sleep pressure if, if driven by adenosine is then dictated by how much adenosine you're producing the more lean mass you have, the more adenosine you produce. And as we get older, especially when we don't exercise, we lose muscle and we lose lean tissue and we lose the ability to produce adenosine. So there's that in there. There's some calcification of the pineal gland that secretes melatonin. So you could have a, a slight decrease in melatonin production. Um, but by and large, so think of it like this. I told you it takes about eight hours to recover from 16 hours of sleep. And this has been validated in a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the ways we've done it is something called the bunker trials, where we just put people in a cold, dark room with nothing but a bed and a toilet uh, for 14 hours a day. And then we let them out for 10 hours a day and put them back in for 14 hours a day. And this is way before cell phones or anything like that. So there's nothing for them to do in this room. Um, and the room's dark, so they can't even read or anything. And what yes. we found is that when you first put people in the room, they'll, the average person would sleep for about 12 and a half hours. 
And then over the course of about three months, well, anywhere from six weeks to three months, it would take people to get down to where they slept about eight hours a day, which meant that they were laying awake for six hours a day in a bed in a cold, dark room. Um, so most people can't do that. If you can't lay awake in a cold, dark room, lay in a bed. What was the purpose of falling asleep? What was the purpose of this? Well, it, it was twofold. So okay. one, it was to figure out how much sleep people need, okay, how long it and how long it takes to pay back sleep debt, right? As they call it. Um, but the other thing it was doing was to give a baseline for performance. So once you do that, once somebody slept consistently for eight hours a night with the opportunity to sleep a lot more, but they just they still just slept eighteen or eight hours. Got it. Um, we call that their baseline. And then you can test them on anything. You can teach them anything then that following morning. And you can say, well, that's your baseline ability, right? That's, that's sort of the genetic you. Now we take away a couple of hours of sleep and test you. Like, mm. have you sleep? We short sleep. You've six hours. Have you come in the next morning and tested whatever skill we're testing on or performance thing we're testing on and you'll do worse. And initially you'll know you did worse. And when they ask you, how do you think you did? You say, I did worse. I was tired. And then day two, maybe day three, maybe, but by day four, every single person will say, I feel like I've completely adapted to the six hour thing. And I think I did as well as I've ever done. And you can show them, nope, your performance is still getting worse. Every day you've gotten worse. Mm. And they'll argue with you because their subjective experience is that they felt great. But anyway, so that was one way we've done it. And other, another thing we've done is there's still almost a hundred thousand hunter gatherers around the planet who have never experienced electricity at all. Uh, and they still live in hunt uh, and huts and, you know, you know, shelters they make themselves and they hunt and gather and that's all mm -hmm. they do. Uh, so they live like our ancestors. And when we studied them and we put actigraphy on them uh, and they, they'll lay down about two or three hours after the sun goes down they'll fall asleep and they'll wake up around the time the sun comes up and that averages out to about seven and a half to eight hours a night. Um, so we, we know this is, we know this is the ideal, uh, it's the way we're designed to be. Um, so if you, if you have people, uh, sleeping eight hours a night, then we know you're, you're basically doing, you know, recovery to the way you were designed. So going back to my, my sort of, uh, metaphors, you know, the reason I, the reason I'm going to sleep eight hours tonight is because, I've depleted a bunch of resources today and I've damaged myself to some extent today. Uh, obviously when I work out, uh, like if I lift weights to get stronger, I don't get stronger while I'm lifting weights, right? I get right. weaker while I'm lifting weights because I'm damaging the tissue. Once that tissue regenerates, which happens while I'm asleep, um, once that repairs, it will repair in a way to be able to lift more weight. It'll It'll, it'll repair to be able to contract harder. It'll be a thicker, it'll have more little actin heads and it'll, it'll be able to do more work. And if I'm doing endurance activity, you know, the cellular organelles will change. So I'll have more mitochondria. I'll be able to do, you know, more outfoss and all that stuff. So, um, my brain and my body are going to use today as a template to repair and re restore. So it's going to replenish, right? I'm going to I'm going to repair from today and I'm going to prepare for tomorrow. Um, what, so if you think about it logically, if I could repair a hundred percent and I could prepare a hundred percent, when I wake up tomorrow, I wouldn't be any worse off, right? By definition, I've repaired a hundred percent. So I'm exactly the same tomorrow morning as I was this morning. Mm -hmm. Well, that means I didn't age. And if I could do that every night, I would never age. And if I never aged, I would, I would never have <laughs> the risk factors that are associated with age, which is basically fewer resources. And I'm not as resilient or I'm not as resilient. I can't repair from from injuries and I can't fight off infections and parasites and things like that as well, because really what being elderly means is that you have fewer resources. You have less muscle mass. You have you have fewer anabolic hormones and fewer anabolic processes going on. You have a, a weakened immune system. 
you don't store energy as well. You don't have as good of circulation. You don't have as much oxygen flowing to your tissues and all of those things make you more fragile. And the more fragile you become, the more likely you are to die from any cause. So if I could sleep eight hours and recover hundred percent, I would just go on forever that way, but I can't. Mm. Right. Um, when I'm younger, I do like when you're a little kid, you're actually getting better right? You sleep more than eight hours, but you sleep for 12 hours and the kids wake up the next day smarter and stronger and taller and faster, right? Right, right. And then at some age, somewhere around 25 to 35, we sort of plateau and it's a net zero. Uh, and then after that, we start repairing maybe 99.97% every night and we're losing a little bit and we're getting eight, older. <clears throat> so the, if you think about it, that means if I choose, and by the way, humans are the only mammal on this planet that chooses to sleep deprive itself. Okay. The only time any other animal will sleep deprive itself is when it's starving, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's under famine. So it needs to be able to wake up earlier to travel further, to forage more, to find food, or if it's being stalked and preyed upon, right? So if it's in right. a dangerous environment, it'll only sleep as much as it needs to be. There's good reason to suspect that we're the same way, right? I mean, this, this is a hundred thousand year old body at minimum. So we evolved in a very similar fashion. So there's good reason to suspect that our brain is perceiving us as possibly under famine or pro possibly being stalked right. if we're choosing to sleep deprive ourselves and our physiology and our behaviors the next day support that. Uh, because you, when you're sleep deprived, when you're a little sleep deprived, you make worse food choices. You make mm -hmm. the food choices of somebody who's starving. Um, mm. and one of the, one of the things that you, that you want to do when you're in famine, uh, which all animals do is you want to kind of shut down the prefrontal cortex and you want to take more risk taking behavior. You want to be able to try novel food. This is what happens. And, uh, you know, when you start putting uh houses in in the middle of uh of an area where you know the natural the natural habitats of animals and they'll stay away from houses and people's trash cans and stuff until they start starving and then they're going to go take that risk mm. um so that risk taking behavior is the same in humans when you're sleep deprived you take more risk you say more dumb things you're more willing to do sort of irrational ir irrational things and your appetite regulation is that of something starving or being preyed upon. But anyways, I digress. The, so if the, if the point of me sleeping eight hours tonight is to repair the best I can to try to not age, if I choose to sleep six hours, I'm choosing to age 25% faster. Okay. There's no way around that. You can't sleep faster. You can't say, well, I'm going to increase the quality and just get all the sleep I need in six hours. It doesn't work that way. Ideal quality still requires about eight hours of sleep. And if you don't have ideal quality and you're sleeping six hours, maybe that's more like five hours or four hours. So maybe you're aging, you know, 50% faster. Um, so back to your original question, those are the type of things that I, I tell people to focus on, like go to Google scholar, go to PubMed, put in sleep and whatever you care about, like sleep. I don't care what it is. Sleep and business sleep and, Right. problem solving, sleep and parenting, sleep and mood, sleep and communication, sleep and immune, sleep and what? strength, sleep and whatever, and read until you're scared. Right. And once you've convinced yourself, then you don't need that much coaching, a, right? You don't need that much information. I was just going to say, what about alcohol's effect on sleep? Um, because I just think a lot of times people probably use alcohol. They think that'll help them sleep, but does it, does it hurt the quality of that sleep? It does. So, uh, so when you, you know, when, when we track people's sleep, so the first thing that's important to realize is that, you know, people, one of the questions I get all the time is what happens when we sleep? And my retort is what happens when we're awake, right? A million things happen when you're asleep, mm -hmm. a million things happen when you're awake. And, right. All right. Uh, so one of the, so, uh, we basically have two flavors of sleep. It's a little more complex than this, but I'll, and this, and a simple way of explaining it, mm -hmm. we have deep sleep and we have REM sleep. Right. So deep sleep is what we call slow wave sleep. So when we do a sleep study on somebody and we're measuring 
we're measuring their brain waves in a mass sort of way. So it, uh, a good metaphor I've heard is like, if you lower down a microphone into a sports stadium, you could hear people doing the wave, right? Mm-hmm. If they're doing that, and that would be like slow wave sleep. Right. Or if everybody's just chattering individually, that's more like REM sleep or maybe more like being awake. Um, so you have REM sleep, which is primarily working on your brain. It's primarily working on your learning. So everything that you learn today, you're going to re- rehearse tonight. Every conversation you have today, you're going to rehearse tonight. Everything you've thought about today, whether it's related to those other two things or not, you're going to think about again tonight. And the things that you learn will be taken from your short-term or working memory to your long-term memory. And then the more important that information is, and the more things in your brain that you could connect to that, you form these really durable pathways. And the more durable the pathway, you can think of it the difference between like a little varmint trail uh, going from here across the street to like a super highway, that would be the really durable pathway. And that allows you to access this information from multiple different angles and think about it in novel ways other than the way you've learned it. And now you really learn, now you really know that information and you can work with it. Um, also, if you say like, if you have a fight with your spouse over something trivial, like dirty dishes in the sink, well, any emotion around that conversation logically should be gone as soon as that conversation's over. Cause that's just not a big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you don't sleep well, you actually emotionally categorize that argument while you're sleeping. So if you don't sleep well and you misfile that or don't file that, then the next time that comes up, that can cause a lot bigger emotional response than is, than is warranted. And so you, you want to make sure that you're getting enough REM sleep to stabilize your mood and emotion, your cognitive processes. Mm. It re, it's replenishing also the nutrients in your brain. You have storage sort of, so to speak in there. It's getting rid of waste products in your brain. So you make allowing your brain to work in its ideal fashion. And like I said, it's regulating your appetite as well. During the deep sleep, the slow wave sleep, um, that's the wave inside mm-hmm. the stadium, right? That's, uh, that's, that's the most anabolic time in your life. So most people have heard of fight or flight. Fight or flight is the maximum amount of stress hormones, right? And we'll just say cortisol to make it easy. So maximum cortisol. And I mean, really the, the maximum, the, the, the best your body can do to secrete cortisol right now, as much as it can possibly produce, that's fight or flight. The exact opposite of fight or flight is deep sleep, Right you're sort of superhuman when you're in fight or flight. If you've ever been in fight or flight, like, you know, you get in a fist fight or you get assaulted, you almost get in a car crash, you get in a car crash or somebody shoots at you or like whatever, some kind of really big threat. Mm-hmm. You're, you're superhuman, right? You can see better, smell better, taste better. Like your reflexes are faster. You have more endurance, more strength, your cardiopulmonary systems ramped up, but it's catabolic. You're using a hundred percent of your resources to fuel your body to get out of that situation. So if you lived in fight or flight, you'd probably die in about two days. The, the exact opposite of that fight or flight when you're superhuman is deep sleep and deep sleep. If fight or flight is maximally catabolic, deep sleep is maximally anabolic anabolic. We're taking small, simple things and building big complex things. So mm-hmm. If I eat a steak, I break it down into amino acids. Those amino acids go through my bloodstream and my, my body can use those amino acids to do lots of things. One of the things it could do is say like build a muscle. So I turn that amino acids into protein structures that then build my muscles up. And now that I've done an anabolic action, actually when I'm in fight or flight and I'm releasing all these uh, catabolic hormones, one of the things that happens and definitely happens when you're in uh, famine starvation is my, my cells will need amino acids. If I'm not eating amino acids, if I'm not, if I don't have the opportunity to eat steak, mm-hmm. well then my, my body's going to use my muscle as a source of amino acids. And it's going to break down my muscle and release amino acids for the other cells to use. So that'd be an, an, an example of catabolic behavior. So anabolic behavior is when you're getting stronger, right? You're 
repairing your damaged tissues, like I was saying, from exercise, or if you have a, a strained ligament or tendon, right? You've injured yourself a little bit. You've been cut. You're you right. have a little bruise, whatever. Like you've damaged yourself a little. You have a viral infection, a bacterial infection, a parasitic infection, um, any of that stuff um, is anabolic to, you know, it requires anabolic activity to repair that. And so all of your anabolic hormones are being regulated during deep sleep. So about 90 to 95% of all the anabolic hormones you produce, you're going to produce in about the first four hours of sleep and every day. So if you're shorting yourself that deep sleep quality, whether it's quality or quantity, you're shorting your anabolic activity. And if I don't repair anabolically, well, then I'm essentially catabolic, right? Because being alive is catabolic. I'm, right. I'm more catabolic than anabolic right now because I'm awake. I'm not eating. I'm using energy, right? Um, right. So like so working, I'm, I'm, working out, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Working out is catabolic right? You're breaking catabolic, things down yeah. and then going to sleep is anabolic. It's when you're building it back up. Uh, right. What about, what about disruptions of sleep? Like, you know, I, this well, is a common complaint. Like they, you know, they get to sleep and then they have to go to the bathroom, <laughs> you know, you know, right. Two times, three times during, can you, can you regain that sleep some way? Um, or, you know, how does, how does that process? Um, no. Um, so, so, so like you said, the, the first half of the night is primarily deep sleep. And mm -hmm. then the second half of your sleep through the morning hours, those are primarily REM sleep. And you're do doing the different things like I'm talking about, like I talked about earlier. Right. So if I wake up during deep sleep, I interrupt my anabolic behavior. And now I have to go back to sleep and get back into it. Now, right. if I'm only awake a couple of minutes and I go right back into deep sleep, if I have to get up and go to the bathroom, big deal, okay. right? Same thing in the morning. If I wake up at four or five o'clock in the morning, I'm probably in REM sleep. I'm interrupting my REM sleep. Um, so if it's strictly episodic like that, I would say even if you had to get up and go to the bathroom four times, if you're going right back to sleep, probably not a big deal. Okay. What's a bigger problem. And people oftentimes don't even recognize this. They just know that they don't feel great when they wake up. A lot of, a lot of the people will complain. They'll say, I feel worse when I wake up than when I went to bed. Mm. Like I, I don't want to go to sleep because I'm going to be more tired when I get up in the morning than I am right now. I'd prefer to just stay up. And that obviously can only work for so long. Um, but what happens more often is people just have really poor quality of sleep. So take something like, uh, just do something simple. Like you don't say you don't have a really, uh, comfortable bed. Okay. Right. Um, and whether it's too hard or too soft ends up kind of the same thing. You become uncomfortable and that triggers your body and your brain to wake up and move to a more comfortable position. Right. Well, if I'm in REM sleep, I'm completely paralyzed. If I'm in deep sleep, I'm almost paralyzed, right? So I have to wake up and come out of that in order to roll over and move. Now, I might not remember that. I might not have no conscious awareness of that whatsoever. But if I do that 50 times an hour, <laughs> I do that all night. Yeah, I'm going to wake up tired the next day. And so if you have a really hard bed, if your mattress is too hard, it can compress your your blood vessels, right? And if you, if you compress the capillaries in your skin, you decrease, decrease or stop the circulation, you can start building up an inflammatory response and your body will want to move because it's like, it's uncomfortable. You know, when we're asleep, our eyes are still working. Our nose are still working. Our ears are still working. We can still feel things. We just aren't paying attention to it, but enough of it can make us pay attention to it, right? As evidenced by you can flip on a light and wake somebody up or make a loud noise and wake somebody up. Everything's still working. So when I'm laying in bed, when I go to sleep, I'm, I'm not consciously processing how comfortable my bed is, but if my bed's too hot or I'm compressing my blood circulation too much to where I have to move, or if my bed, bed's too soft, it sinks down and it compresses my joint in a weird angle and that causes some pain and I have to move over. Um, you know, the mattress is too hot. I have to move around and find a cool spot, whatever it is. If you do that all throughout the night, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to wake up the next day 
again, feeling like you wish you wouldn't have gone to sleep. Uh, but if you're getting good quality sleep and you have to get up, let the dogs out once, get up, go to the bathroom a couple of times, not a big deal. Okay. It'd be ideal. It'd be ideal not to do that. But, you know, I was, when I work with my clients, I always say, you know, there's ideal and then there's reality, right. <laughs> you know, and we do what we can to mitigate, you know, we do what we can to supplement and, you know, mitigate in between ideal and reality. Is there a, I wrote this down. I wanted to ask you, is there a best sleeping position that you recommend? Yeah. Uh, it's called, it's called the semi prone where it's essentially your chest is flat on the, uh, on the bed. flat on the bed as though you were laying on your stomach, but your hips Wait. are almost on your side to where your legs oh. are like out a little bit. I think I might that do creates that. The, <laughs> that. That creates the less, the least amount of tension on the low back, which is the most commonly sort of compressed joint and it distributes your weight pretty the most evenly. And then um, what about putting something in between your knees? So, so that you're yeah, sort if of you, aligned. If you lay, com if you lay completely on your side, then your knees will bend forward and that'll rotate your low back a little bit. And you could, you can compress on that. I mean, if you do yoga every day or something, that probably doesn't matter, but if you're, you know, an average man, you know, you weigh a couple of hundred pounds and, uh, you know, you don't do yoga every day, uh, then yeah, that that's probably going to compress your spine. Um, it's hard to keep something between your legs. Cause that's like, yeah. you know, I, something I, that I, kind of requires some awareness. So I would recommend trying to do the semi-prone thing. Okay. Um, gosh, I feel like if it's in an hour has passed, I feel like we can do another hour. Maybe we'll do a part two, um, yeah. on, on sleep. I think, I think I would like that. Um, Cause I wanted to get into, I know that you have, um, you know, you have a product line, a sleep remedy product line, um, yeah. and you know, with melatonin tryptophan, maybe tell us a little bit about, uh, your formulation and how it can be beneficial. Yeah. Um, so my formulation, I, I, I didn't develop that as a, as a product to sell. I, I developed that when I was working with the seals because I wanted to get them off of Ambien. And I couldn't just, they were taking Ambien because they couldn't sleep, obviously. So I had to give them something else. <laughs> right. And I was telling them to quit drinking alcohol. So what was I going to give them? Um, and so th that was just through my own research and then working with the SEALs. And we just came up with a concoction of everything that made sense to put in there. So things that I could measure that I knew were low, like things like vitamin D3 and magnesium, obvious, those things are in there. A light dust, a very light dusting of melatonin. You don't want to take over the brain's job of producing melatonin, but you can give enough to sort of initiate uh, the cascade. So, most people who who think of, who've heard of the tryptophan coma, the Thanksgiving Day nap on the couch, right? Right. It's not that turkey has more tryptophan than any other meat. It's just nobody tends to eat two pounds of steak, you know. But you probably eat two pounds of turkey, and then <laughs> yeah, we're throwing in some carbohydrate crashes and stuff in there too, but. Uh, so the production of melatonin is tryptophan becomes five hydroxy tryptophan with the help of magnesium and vitamin D three, five hydroxy tryptophan becomes serotonin, serotonin becomes melatonin, melatonin, as most people know, is the initiation, sort of the starter pistol of the sleep cascades that make you feel sleepy a few hours later. So, uh, that's what my product is. Mm tryptophan, 5-hydroxytryptophan, magnesium, vitamin D3, light dusting of melatonin. And then one of the big chemical changes in your brain is the production of this neuropeptide called GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid. And that um, makes it, like I was saying earlier, all of your senses still work. You're just not paying attention to your environment as much. So that's what's we're doing what's called lowering the resting potential of the brain. And that's what GABA does is it, it makes it harder for those neurons to fire. So you aren't paying attention to your environment as much. So the product is the production pathway of melatonin, a little bit of melatonin and GABA. And then recently I added some phosphatidylserine in there to decrease cortisol uh, because high cortisol levels interfere with your ability to sleep well and get quality sleep. So there's nothing magic in there. There's nothing in there that makes you go to sleep. All it does is it sets your brain up with everything that it needs and kind of initiates the cascade to help you initiate 
what you need to go to sleep and to make sure you have all the resources to go to sleep. So you like, you could take it right now and it's not going to make you sleepy because you're not, you're not in that, you're not in that environment. State, right? right. So it's sort of just, yeah. it obviously it's obviously all natural. So it, the sense that it's just sort of helping you. It's like, it's give, true. It's truly supplemental. I mean, right. it's and the, yeah. the actual definition of supplement, like it's, it, we're just supplementing your natural storage to make sure everything's in there. Anything you don't need, is going to be in your urine. You know, it's going to be in your bladder or your colon within like three or four hours. So there's nothing in there that makes you fall asleep. There's no trick in there. Like all the pharmaceuticals, there's a trick. Like Ambien right. is a trick. It, it acts like GABA, but a thousand times more powerful than GABA. Right. Uh, but that has some consequences, right? Um, Drowsiness, so, knocks you out, right? Yeah. yeah. And you have it in a yeah. tea or, or in a pill form. Is that right? Yeah. So, so I, I prefer the tea partially because it, it kind of creates a bedtime ritual and that's a big part of getting good sleep is to have some sort of, you know, ritual that you're doing to get ready for bed. Just like when you get a little kid ready for bed, we need to get ready for bed as adults as well. Right. Um, and the liquid absorbs faster, obviously you're not having to dissolve capsules. Um, but people who don't want to take the drink or don't like the taste of the drink, they have, prostate issues they don't you know make them go right. to the bathroom too much if they drink it so they'll they'll do capsules okay yeah i'm looking at it right now that's great um well this was good this is this went by fast and perhaps we'll do a part two and just keep going because i have a lot more questions for you um regarding sleep yeah i'd be more like. than happy yeah that that would be great um, i'd be more than happy to do another one okay yeah let's do that um i guess on that note what um my, my last question that I have for you is, um, this is a question I ask a lot of guests is, you know, we talk about how you can get your body back to what it once was when you were 20 and 30. Uh, what would you tip? Would you give someone maybe to get their sleep back to what it once was when they were in their twenties and they could, you know, potentially maybe even sleep in sometimes and, um, and get good quality sleep. So what, what, what type of tips would you give that individual to get their sleeping patterns back to what they once were? Yeah. So again, the most important, the most important step is convincing yourself of how important it is. Right. Once you get there, like you're already wired to sleep, it's pretty easy to get sleep. But uh, if you look at, you know, sleep hygiene and all these sleep programs, sleep ritualization, all this stuff that people talk about, there's three things. If you think about your ancestors, just think about a thousand years ago, how did people go to sleep? Uh, well, the sun went down, so the blue light left their eyes. That initiated melatonin. That initiated a bunch of cascades. Their GABA increased. Their brain started slowing down. We're a very visual animal. It was dark. We couldn't see at night. We didn't have flashlights. We didn't have electricity. So there wasn't much to see. There wasn't much to interact with. Mm -hmm. um, and because the sun went down and we didn't have HVAC, we got colder. So that's really those are really the three cues for being ready for sleep. So one, you need to block the blue light in your eyes a couple of hours before bed. There's a million ways to do that. Next, though, you need to decrease your interaction with your environment. So it's not enough to wear blue blocking glasses and sit down at your computer and work till 9.59 and get in bed at 10 o'clock. You're, you know, you're, right. you're not going to go to sleep quickly. Uh, so you need, you need a protracted period where you're slowing down and you're not you're not paying attention to your environment very much. And if you're watching television, you watch something dumb and trite. You don't watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You don't watch something that's super emotionally uh, stimulating to you. And then you have to decrease your body temperature. And you can do that with showers and baths and air conditioner in your house. Um, but really, if now the other part is that you know, exercise, nutrition, and stress mitigation, right, all right, of that matters in your ability to go to sleep. Right. So you have to, you have to do the other stuff right in your day as well, uh, to help you, to help you go to sleep. But if you just, if you, if you take it seriously and give yourself, uh, you know, at least an hour, uh, to no, cool. I'm not saying you have to turn off all the lights and start meditating and all that right. in, in an hour, but you need to start thinking about going to sleep and decreasing, your attention span and all that. Um, so, and on my website, one of the things I have is I have a PDF on like how to get stress out of your life when you're sleeping, how, you know, how to deal with the, you know, 
everybody has stressors and how to deal with that so that it doesn't interfere with sleep. It would take me an hour to explain that, but it, it's just kind of a ritualization. It's just like some ways to think about things and some things to, to write down and, and yeah, the sleep journal. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of journals. Yeah. I got, I, I, I came out with the intermittent fasting journal. So I, I, uh, I, I love journals and writing things down and, um, and keeping track. And one other thing I was just going to say is, um, uh, going bed, going to bed around the same time. Um, I find that for me is very helpful. Is that something that you, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. we, we're, we're, we're never going to get back to using this sun as our exclusive cue, right. but the, the closer, the closer you can be to going to sleep two to three hours after the sun goes down and waking up around sunup. I mean, that's the way you evolved. Uh, that's the ideal performance out of this machine that you inhabit. Um, so, you know, I recognize people work night shifts and have, you know, again, there's ideal and there's reality and we can talk about how to compensate in between those two. But, uh, you know, the, the ideal would be, yeah, go to sleep two to three hours after the time, after the sun goes down and wake up around sun up every day. Mm, okay. Now that's the way you evolved. Well, Doc, this was good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, like I said, I think we got a lot more questions lined up. So maybe we'll do a we'll, we'll do a part two add on to it because uh, there's a lot you know a lot we can go into. So I appreciate you coming on, though. Yeah, man, my pleasure. Look forward to the next one. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.